If you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn with me again to the text that Dr. Grace read for us a moment ago, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And while you're turning there, let me say thank you so much, Dr. Grace, for that very kind uh, introduction. It's always a joy and a privilege to preach God's Word, and so I'm thankful for this privilege here this morning uh, to be able to preach God's Word in this setting. I know we read the text a moment ago, but in case you weren't in, you got in late, let me read it for us again. So hear the word of the Lord from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The American journalist John Gunther once said, If a man's from Texas, he'll tell you. If he's not, why embarrass him by asking? And my guess is those of you who are native Texans would give a hearty amen to that statement. Yes, there you go. You are quite proud of your status as sons and daughters of the Lone Star State. There's just a certain pride that you have in being Texan. And for those of us who are not from, excuse me, not from here, you you treat us, no, don't misunderstand me, you you treat us very well, you are uh, kind and welcoming to us, but let's be honest, you pity us for not having had the fortune of being born here. You pity us for not having the privilege of being Texan. Well, that's kind of what it was like during the Roman Empire. There was a certain pride and honor that people had in being Roman citizens. It was a little like being a Texan because people who were Roman citizens were very proud of that status. It was a privilege that not everyone enjoyed. And remember, Philippi, place where this letter is being written, Philippi was a colony of Rome, which meant that the Philippians enjoyed the privilege of being Roman citizens. Now, of course, with that privilege also came responsibility. You see, Roman citizens, like the Philippians, were expected to conduct themselves, to live in a certain way, in a way that was becoming of a Roman citizen. 
in a way that was fitting and appropriate for Roman citizens to behave. In other words, they were expected to live in such a way that their lives promoted and honored the Roman Empire. So the Apostle Paul, knowing that this mindset exists, knowing this expectation, knowing that this is just the cultural air that the Philippians breathed, uses that mindset. He applies that mindset to this church. He tells them in verse 27, only, now don't miss the force of that first word here, only, just this one thing, whatever else you hear, don't miss this. He's stressing and emphasizing the importance of what he's about to say. Only, Let your manner of life be worthy. Let your conduct be worthy. Only behave as citizens worthy of, not the Roman Empire, but of the gospel of Christ. Now, later in this letter, in chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is going to remind the Philippians that they are citizens, not just of Rome, but they are citizens of heaven. And here he is exhorting them to behave like they are citizens of heaven. Let your conduct, let your manner of life, let your behavior be worthy of the gospel, be worthy of your status as citizens of heaven. Live in such a way that your life honors and promotes not Rome, but honors and promotes the gospel. In other words, Paul is saying to them, the gospel you proclaim with your lips must also be promoted with your lives. It must be portrayed in the way you live. And in this particular context, Paul is helping them understand that you must do this even in the face of opposition, even in the face of hostility. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel even when the gospel is opposed. That's the heart of this passage. That's really what this passage is about. And therefore, that's what this sermon is going to be about. Our lives should display, not discredit, the worth of the gospel, even in the face of opposition. Let me say that again. Our lives should display, not discredit, the worth of the gospel, even in the face of opposition. And brothers and sisters, that is a message we need to hear. We need to be reminded that yes, there are wonderful privileges that are ours because we are in Christ, but there are responsibilities as well. Being citizens of heaven carries with it the responsibility of behaving like citizens of heaven. And all the more so, when we see our king and his kingdom being opposed, our lives ought to display the worth of the gospel, not discredit it. And that's what this text here in verses 27 through 30 aims to help us with. Now, the main imperative, the main point, the main exhortation is found there at the beginning of verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
But the context of this passage tells us that we're being exhorted to do this in the face of hostility, in the face of opposition. So in the rest of the passage, we're going to be told what this looks like and why it matters. We're told what it actually looks like to live our lives in such a way that they display rather than discredit the worth of the gospel in the face of opposition. And we're told why it matters that we do this, why it matters that we obey this exhortation. So that's the way we're going to approach this passage this morning. We're gonna consider the, the imperative, the exhortation there in the first part of verse 27. Then we're gonna see what it looks like to obey that imperative. And then we're gonna finally see why that matters that we do that. Now, first of all, I wanna make sure you notice what this text is saying and what it's not saying in regards to this exhortation. It is saying that our conduct, our behavior, our lives should promote, they should portray, they should display the worth of the gospel. This text is not saying that we should behave in such a way that we try to prove or promote our worth. There's a big difference there. We want our lives to promote the worth of Christ and his gospel, not ourselves. So understand, the exhortation in verse 27 is not some sort of manipulative, legalistic guilt trip. Paul is not saying, you better live your life in such a way that you prove you are worthy of God. That's not what Paul is saying. No, rather, Paul is saying, live in such a way that you prove Christ's worth to the world. That's what he's saying here in verse 27. And notice, Paul says this ought to be the case whether he comes to see them or he doesn't. Keep reading in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you're doing this. In other words, Paul is trying to help them see, look, this ought to be the consistent way you live your life, whether I'm there with you or not. In other words, this is just standard Christian living. This is the Christian life 101. That's what Paul's trying to help them realize. All the time, our lives ought to display rather than discredit the worth of the gospel. Now, the question becomes, what exactly does that look like? How do we do that? Well, we're given three descriptions here in this text of what it looks like to make sure our lives are displaying the worth of the gospel rather than discrediting it. First, he tells us that we are to stand firm in one spirit. Look at what he goes on to say. He wants to hear of them that they are standing firm in one spirit. Verse 27. Now, when you are facing hostility, when you are facing opposition, This is difficult to do. It's not easy to stand firm when you've got enemies coming at you. The the easy thing to do is to to back down, to cower, to, to run away. When you know the enemy is coming for you, it's not easy to stand your ground. That's exactly what we're encouraged to do here. We're called to man our post, to stand firm, to have our feet firmly planted. It's like taking a charge in basketball or an army holding a line. You you know the enemy, you know the opponent is coming, but you stand your ground anyway. But notice 
we're not just called to stand firm. We're called to stand firm in one spirit. In other words, there should be a unity. There should be a solidarity that keeps us standing firm together. Why? Well, because the enemy wants to divide and conquer. We're much easier to defeat when we're divided. We're much harder to defeat when we stand firm together. This means, this text is helping us see we need one another to obey this imperative. We need one another to obey this exhortation. We need each other if we are going to stand firm. Because if we're left to ourselves, we are much more likely to lose our composure. We are much more likely to lose any conviction and courage. We are much more likely to lose our footing. We need one another. The old adage applies here. United we stand, but divided we fall. We need our brothers and sisters beside us, holding us up, even picking us up when we grow fearful and start to stumble. So understand, this is not an individualistic exhortation that Paul is giving here. Remember, Paul is writing this letter to a church, to a congregation. This is all second person plural language. Paul's not saying you by yourself need to stand firm. Paul is saying y'all together need to stand firm. Help each other stand firm. This is something we're called to do together with our brothers and sisters, which is why students especially hear this. Students, you need to be a part of a local church. You need to be a part of a local body of believers where you have brothers and sisters who can stand with you and who you can stand with. You need to be a part of a church because it's that kind of unity, it's that kind of resilience in the face of opposition, that kind of togetherness in the face of opposition that truly begins to display the worth of the gospel, much more so than when we just stand by ourselves in an isolated kind of way. But when we stand firm together, that displays something of the beauty and worth of the gospel. Then notice the second description. We're to stand firm in one spirit. Then he says, in the next part of verse 27, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So we're to stand firm in one spirit and we're to strive side by side with one mind. Now this idea of striving side by side, as the ESV translates it. It's a military image. It's the picture of soldiers on the battlefield fighting side by side. That's what we're being called to, like, like soldiers on a battlefield contending for the faith together, presenting a united front. And again, notice Paul stresses the need for unity. We are to strive side by side with one mind, with one soul, in one accord, as one man. We are to strive together in such unity that it's not like we are doing this as separate individuals, but it's as if we are one collective group standing, striving for the faith. So again, we're 
to stand firm and we are to strive, but we must do it together in one spirit, with one mind. Now, brothers and sisters, let's be honest with ourselves here. We Southern Baptists have stressed standing firm. We say amen to that. We even boast sometimes about how firm we have stood our ground. And we're all about striving and fighting, make no mistake about it. But we're not exactly known for standing firm in one spirit or striving side by side. Sadly, we have too often fought against each other rather than with each other. We've too often seen each other as the opposition and help push each other down rather than help each other stand firm. What does that kind of behavior say about the worth of the gospel? What does it say about the worth of the Christ we profess? That kind of behavior discredits the gospel. It doesn't display it. So if our lives are going to display rather than discredit the worth of the gospel in the face of opposition, then we must stand firm in one spirit. We must strive side by side against the right opponents. We must realize that we have a shared enemy, but it is not the person of a different theological tribe, and it is not a person from a different seminary, and it is not a person from a different kind of church than ours. We can disagree with them over secondary and tertiary issues, but let's remember those are fellow citizens of heaven with us. Those are teammates, not opponents. We must learn to stand with them, not against The world, the flesh, and the devil are all the opponent we can handle. We don't need to fight against each other. So we stand firm in one spirit. We strive side by side with one mind. And then notice third, we should be unafraid. We should be unafraid. Look at the first part of verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. We are not to be intimidated or frightened in anything by the opposition that we face. Now this word frightened is a word that was used to describe horses when they get startled. Those of you who've spent any time around horses, you know when a horse gets startled, when it gets scared, it panics, completely panics. Sadly, this too often is exactly what happens to Christians the moment they face any opposition. This is certainly what seems to be happening in so much of American evangelicalism. As the opposition seems to grow around us, increasingly we seem to be plagued by a posture of fear. Brothers and sisters, we seem to have forgotten that all authority in heaven and on earth still belongs to our king. We seem to have forgotten that the gates of hell still will not prevail against his church. 
We seem to have forgotten that though the nations rage, he who sits in the heavens still laughs. We seem to have forgotten that we serve a risen Savior who is in the world today, and we know that he is living no matter what men may say. We seem to have forgotten that no matter what happens, the Lord can still move. The Lord can still send revival. We seem to have forgotten that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We seem to have forgotten that no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. We seem to have forgotten that if God is for us, who can stand against us? And we seem to have forgotten that the most repeated command in all of Scripture is fear not. Brothers and sisters, few things will display the worth of the gospel in the face of opposition like being unafraid of opposition. Facing it calmly and with hope. Now, some of you may be sitting there thinking, that sounds great, but how do I do that? How in the world do I learn to Face opposition without fear, being unafraid. Well, one of the best ways that I can give you to learn how to do that is by learning from those who have done it in the past. By learning from those who have already stood firm, courageously, faithfully in the face of opposition. So you want a really practical way to do this? Read missionary biographies. Read missionary biographies. They are full of stories of courage in the face of opposition and persecution. Let me give you, here's a bonus one. Here's one more. It's a beautiful day. So at some point today, take a walk over outside Mathena Hall and spend a little time strolling through the Martyr's Walk. And just start looking at some of the names on the plaques on the Martyr's Walk. And just pick out a few and and go and read about them. Go to the library and find books, find stories about Bill Wallace and about Martha Myers and about Karen Watson, about Landrum Holmes, who was murdered on the field and his wife, Sally, instead of coming back to the States, decided to stay on the field. And then the Lord would use her to mentor a young lady whom you may have heard of called Lottie Moon. I wish I could tell you their stories and their stories are phenomenal, but I don't have the time. So go do the research, learn. Learn about how their lives and their deaths displayed the worth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what it looks like. We stand firm in one spirit. We strive side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. And then we're unafraid in the face of opposition. Now, why does this matter? Why is this kind of behavior so significant? Why why does Paul say only this, just this one thing? Don't miss this. Why why is it so significant? Two reasons this text gives us. Number one, because of the sign that it is. Because of the sign that it is. Look, Look again at verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. 
When we persevere under persecution, when we stand firm, unafraid in the face of opposition, it is a two-sided sign of God's verdict on the last day. To our enemies, it is a sign of their defeat and demise and destruction and judgment. And to us, it is a sign of our salvation and victory. So to our opponents, it's a sign that they can't defeat us. They can't stamp out the gospel. They cannot claim final victory over God. Even killing us won't give them the victory. They tried that once with Jesus, and how did it work out? (laughs) He's doing just fine, and so is his church. Because once we realize that we have the victory, then then we'll start to understand really what Paul was getting at when he said in the, the passage we looked at, Last week, that Dr. Bradford preached when Paul said, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, whatever happens, I win either way. When we start to live like that, when we start to understand that that's how the Christian life is meant to be lived, we display the worth of the gospel because that kind of fearless conduct in the face of opposition is a sign to our opponents of their own demise, of their inability to defeat the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice it's also a sign to us. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So it is an assurance to us of the fact that we really do belong to Christ. Jesus said, if the world hates me, or excuse me, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. If they persecute me, they'll persecute you as well. If we are facing opposition and persecution because of our faith in Christ, then it's a sign that we really do belong to Christ. They're treating us the way they treated him. So it serves as something of an assurance, of a sign of our own salvation. So that's the first reason that it matters. The second reason it matters is because of the gift that it is. Because of the gift that it is. Look at verses 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now, I know we don't normally think about opposition and persecution and suffering for Christ as a gift, That's what verse 29 says. It has been granted to you. It it has been given to you as a gift. Just as your faith was given to you as a gift, so suffering for Christ has been granted to us as a gift. This text is teaching us to think about suffering and opposition differently than the way we tend to normally think about them. They are not a sign of divine punishment. They're a sign of divine providence. It's not some sign of divine affliction on you. It's actually a sign of divine affection for you. That God is calling you to look more and more like Christ. And if Jesus learned through suffering, then how much more do we? And verse 30 reminds us that these things can be a gift to us because they give us solidarity with others who are suffering with Christ. 
they give us a sense of camaraderie with others who are engaging in this same conflict. So we have other brothers and sisters who are going through this, and now we understand what it's like to go through that. And that's a comfort when you are suffering. Because when you're suffering, it is easy to feel isolated. It's easy to feel like I'm the only one who's ever experienced this. I'm the only one who knows what this is like. But what this text is reminding us of is that when we are engaged in this kind of conflict, this kind of suffering, we're actually engaged in the same kind of conflict that Paul had and that the Philippians had and that our brothers and sisters around the world have today. And that can be a gift of God to strengthen us and comfort us as we keep seeking to stand firm, unafraid, in the face of opposition. So brothers and sisters, let me say it again. In the face of opposition, let your life display, not discredit the worth of the gospel. But having said that, let me close with this reminder. The gospel only has worth because the person it promotes and portrays has worth, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. So remember, it is really his worth that we are displaying when we live our lives this way. Remember, it is, verse 27, the gospel of Christ. It's his gospel, it's his worth that we are displaying. It is because of Christ that we stand firm. It's because of Christ that we have a faith to contend for. It's because of Christ that we can stand firm together. We can stand strive by side. Why? Because Christ has made us one. It is because of Christ that we don't have to be afraid. It is because of Christ that we have salvation. It is because of Christ that we can trust suffering can be used for good. And it's why in the next section in chapter 2, Paul is going to put forward whose example? The example of Christ. So remember, the gospel is of infinite worth only because Jesus is of infinite worth. One day when we stand with all the redeemed from all of the ages and with people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, we will not say worthy is the gospel. We will say worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is Christ. So the first step, the first step in living a life that displays the worth of the gospel is simply recognizing and rejoicing in the one to whom the gospel points recognizing the worth of Christ. It is to say, my worth is not in what I own. My worth is not in the strength of flesh and bone. My worth is not in skill or name and win or lose or pride or shame. No, my worth is found in the blood of Christ, which flows at the cross. He is the one who is worthy, and therefore I will rejoice in my Redeemer. He is my greatest treasure. He is the wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him. No other. My soul will be satisfied in Christ alone.